today on Ag News Daily. We don't have a draft of the farm bill from really anyone. We have an outline, maybe. There's been so little information and so little um, uh, prioritization of the farm bill. It just seems to be stuck behind something all the time. Welcome to Friday. This is February 16th, 2024. Ag News Daily Edition with guest co-host Corey Hillebo. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Corey. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoying some nice sunny weather down here in California. <laughs> That's right. Delaney took over for me yesterday. So I brought in a little help today to help me out with some of these headlines. I always like to start off with some weather here, Corey. Wanted to see what our friends back in the central parts of the states are experiencing. Winter weather is making its way across parts of the U.S. today. We are looking for Almost every state north of the Missouri line in northeastern Missouri, western Illinois, winter weather advisory is in effect until 3 p.m. today. One to three inches of snow is forecasted for that area. Parts of Indiana up to four inches. And as it continues to progress across the state, we could see areas of five to six inches of snow. Of course, Corey, this is going to make road conditions slippery. So make sure you plan extra time as you are taking your trips and travels to wrap up this week. Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, tweets on social media and X and all that kind of stuff. People uh, saying they were not happy to see the snow come back in their lives. They got a little used to the uh, January and February warm up. Yeah, it certainly seems like that groundhog is fooling us. Or maybe this is just the last chance of weather that we're going to get. As far as winter weather goes, I'm sure wanted to get our ethanol production figures out to the listeners. Ethanol production did jump to its highest level this last year. Inventories are now at a three-week high. The production surged to an average of 1.083 million barrels per due. That's up from 1.033 the week before that. Inventories in the week, February 9, increased to 25.81 million barrels that is up from 24.79 the week before so looks like their production is outpacing demand at this point uh we absolutely need that we need the demand because we have way too many bushels on hand yeah i think this will be uh, a big conversation i saw the extreme ag guys send out uh, a very informational episode of their podcast on uh, <clears throat> sustainable aviation fuel and what that could do for demand. Uh, I also saw that there is a great conversation with uh, Mitchell Hora that is available for discussion on carbon intensity scores. I think, Corey, you and I are going to try to catch up with him at Commodity Classic and get some good information on the Farm for Profit channel as well. Yeah, and don't quote me. I mean, we're down here in California, and this is our our first time, but looking at the gas stations, I mean, gas is over $5 a gallon down here. And yesterday we drove by a gas station that had E85, and I know it had a three in front of it. So um, it's definitely making an impact down here. So we just need more ethanol. Yeah, it's uh, part of this interview that Mitchell did said, if you're going to sell your products, your corn, your grain to a biofuel plant, then make sure that you understand what your carbon intensity score is. So it'll be great for us to get some more information around that as well. We We'll continue to keep and monitor headlines around what the EPA is issuing for orders on dicamba products. As of the 14th, EPA issued an existing stocks order for dicamba products that were previously registered for over-the-top use. This order addresses the use of those products affected by the Arizona federal court's decision to vacate the regulations earlier this month. 
This authorizes the limited sale and distribution of existing stocks that are already in the possession of, of the people and businesses that have proper registration. Existing stocks provision will apply to those previously registered pesticide products, including Ingenia, Tavium, and Extendamax, currently with U.S. packaged and proper label directions. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that. There is a target that those had to have been shipped and arrived prior to February 6th, Corey. Well, that's good. I mean, I guess there's nothing really good about this, but it definitely softens the blow because so many farmers, especially, you know, we're, we're business people and we need to buy these inputs at the right time. And a lot of the purchases have been done. Um, so that was a multi-million dollar uh, deal that could have hurt farmers. So hopefully this uh, just gives them more time to figure it all out. Yeah, we could see another million dollar issue here as feds are issuing warnings on Chinese manufactured drones. Modern agriculture data is obviously key and very should be very well protected. When we fly these drones, they are collecting field data out of your field. So we do have a warning here. There is a range of camera and radar-based sensors that come on these drones as they are applying either cover crops, spraying, or just doing surveys. As they take their passes across the field, there are concerns that Chinese-made drones may be collecting and transmitting that information. The U.S. has been communicating with Chinese manufacturers of these UAS devices and the UAS Security Cyber and Infrastructure Agency, didn't even know that existed, Corey, has been working with the Office of Homeland Security. They are going to continue to monitor the construction of these items to make sure that our cybersecurity guidance methods are met and that those will not pose any risk to farmers in the U.S. I didn't realize that there were laws around agricultural drones, as well as U.S. missile fields and locations of the data and information that is being shared. So we will continue to keep an eye on this, and hopefully it doesn't slow down that technological advancement for farmers in their fields for 2024. That's that's an interesting thing. You know, I think satellites have gotten so good. You know, you can go to Google Earth and some of these other uh, services and um, get pretty high-res images from space. So... I don't know what these drones really get. Maybe more, maybe some more detail, I guess. Yeah, it'll be interesting to continue to keep an eye on those headlines. Uh, Corey, we usually keep an eye on Russia and Ukraine headlines. We did see here overnight that the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, died on Friday. Russian state media was reporting uh, that this happened while in prison, serving the sentence that had been stated out for him. The press secretary stated that uh, they did confirm of his demise through CNBC and are not going to allow any reporters to independently verify this. Meanwhile, President Zelensky is visiting Germany and France today in a bid to secure some military assistance and bilateral security commitments, helping to repel the Russian invasion. And when stopping in Berlin and Paris, they could become the second and third Ukrainian allies in this bilateral security pledge with Kiev after the January UK deal. We obviously reported on that substantial package of support. This would help shore up military and positions in Ukraine after being uh, looking for that coveted NATO position. This trip would be the first foreign excursion since replacing his popular army chief uh, or his previous army chief. The Ukrainian troops will now 
be withdrawing from some of the areas and backing out of some strategic battlefields because fire and drone attacks have become heavy on their area. Russian prosecutors Korea are also monitoring citizens that have been holding rallies against Moscow after that officer's death. So we'll continue to keep an eye on there, but it sounds like things might not be going in the right direction for Ukraine as of late. Yeah, got to keep an eye on this geopolitics. It affects all of the world. Well, that's about it for headlines today on this Friday. We'll keep it short so we can get to our great interview. Want to take a quick look at markets. We do have uh, the March corn contract opening up a penny this morning. It's at 418 and a half. The March soybean contract is up nine and a half, Corey, overnight at 1172 even as we record. Wheat's contract looking at March for uh, unchanged as we get here mid-morning at 567. Live cattle report up a buck 55 coming in for the February contract at 184.95. Feeder cattle itself following right along up 370 coming in that March contract at 250.80. So let's jump, Corey. Appreciate you hanging around with us, but I'm going to jump into our conversation. I do have one thing, Tanner, before we go. Oh, great. Throw a little wrench into this Friday episode. I love it. Yes. Happy National Almond Day. We are down in the (laughs) pretty much the almond capital of the world. And I just want to add a little blurb for you. California is home to 7,600 almond farms and nearly 90% of them are family owned. In 2022, they exported around four and a half billion dollars worth. So a little tidbit for you. Hey, that was great. You know, typically when Delaney helps me out, those tidbits come out early, uh, but I appreciate it nonetheless. <laughs> well, just trying to be a good co-host here, but I'm I'm excited to go see some almonds and then let's get to your guest. Hey, I love it. Thanks. We'll get into that conversation now. Well, as we continue to dissect and discover where the farm bill is at in the process to getting installed we are chatting today with Dr. Roman Keeney, an associate professor for Purdue. Roman, thanks for taking the time to chat with me this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. So let's dig right in. The Farm Bill, it's in quite the state as we've seen now one-year extension passed. Where are we at in the path to progression of getting a Farm Bill installed? Um, early? <laughs> uh, we're We're... At the beginning stages, I would say we don't have a draft of the farm bill from really anyone. Um, you know, at, at, we have an outline, maybe. Um, what we do have are some budget numbers, um, which uh, is always a, a an interesting way for the process to start. To, to go in looking and say, here are the things we want to cut and the money we want to save and redirect. Now, that stuff has to be done, but normally uh, you would see a list of priorities, um, you know, the, the sort of sacred uh, untouchable pieces, the pieces that we think are no longer working, and then, you know, the, the things where there's some um, uh, fungibility on the funding side, uh, maybe a little bit of reform, uh, would would catch things up uh we don't really have any of that so it's it's been uh as someone who started uh, a little over a year ago trying to model some of this stuff and put it together and uh think about you know, i mostly do commodity programs um as a, as a specialty we have some other people here working on crop insurance um and then 
some others. Uh, I've dove into the SNAP nutrition side too, just because it's such a, a big funding piece that we all kind of take a look at it. Um, but there's been so little information and so little um, uh, prioritization of the farm bill. It just seems to be stuck behind something all the time. And so for most of the last spring, it was stuck behind the debt limit. Well, we'll get to it after the debt limit. And the debt limit caused its own problems. And by the time you were done with the debt ceiling deal or the debt limit deal, um, it was time to start the appropriations process. Well, the appropriations process for fiscal year 2024 um, didn't work. I mean, if, if you consider a success writing a, a, a appropriations bills for the full year. Um, so we're still sort of stuck behind that. We have new deadlines in March coming up for that. And, um, you know, it, it almost seems like there is a push to start putting some things out. I saw last at the end of last week, um, the Democrats published uh, on, in the House, published uh, a list of priorities, mostly um, trying to get a full alignment around protecting SNAP nutrition funds. Um, and then Chairman Thompson, um, you know, he continued to push his outline um of of really changing reference prices for commodity producers um and trying to uh reduce increases in snap that might come through what we call the thrifty food program uh which can be reevaluated every 5 years and um uh, and then some of the IRA the um uh the why can't I think of it sorry that's the, okay uh, um Inflation Reduction Act. It has, yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. There's about 15 billion in climate funds um, to be spent through farm bill programs in a few years from now that they're trying to claw back and reuse for more direct uh, support to farm and farm incomes. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of moving pieces. Uh, and I'm curious, maybe we should have started with this question. But for those of our listeners, I think we're all aware that a farm bill needs to get done. And we understand what the deadlines are to get there. But what's the process that actually goes in behind the scenes to get this thing pulled together? Because it's no easy feat, uh, to their credit. And it does take a very long time. It's got a lot of checks and balances to go through. But what does that process look like to pull together an entire farm bill? Yeah, well, I mean that that's the trick, right? And that's the thing that puts us at the early stages. If if all you have is a, is a rough outline um and you start shopping it around, I mean, maybe that is the process, but you start to get draft sections and saying this is what the changes to the commodity program would look like. And you start to build up um you know, on your own side uh, of the process, you know, if you're the Republican chair of the House Ag Committee, um, some consensus around these are the things we have to have. And then you start handing it off to aides to draft actual sections. And, you know, a lot of it uses old text and say, we're not going to change this program or we're going to change a few of those. But but that all takes time. And we're mid-February now when you, you if you think about sort of building up that coalition, seeing how the other side is going to be, it's such a narrow game in the House of Representatives right now um, because 
both parties have um, some rogue, I guess, elements in terms of keeping the uh, coalition together. Um, I was just reading the other day about how important it's going to be for Thompson, Chairman Thompson, to to bring along, to find some working path with moderates because there's so many sort of anti-spending Republicans in his own uh, party that will not look at anything that that doesn't sort of contribute to deficit reduction. So that process takes time. Then you play with language. And then, of course, we're only talking about one chamber. Right? We're talking about the House of Representatives, who seems to be taking the lead on this. The Senate will write their own version, and they'll disagree. And then you have to appoint a bunch of people to to develop a conference committee. They come up with a joint version of the House uh, process or the House form of the legislation, the Senate form of the legislation. Um, they make their negotiations. You send your own team from the Senate, from the House for Democrats and Republicans. And then you take the thing to the both floors and hope you can get a vote. And if we had a working version of the bill today, we could be hopeful that like July 1st, we would be voting on conference versions of the bill. And so that is uh, we're halfway through the second month. If we're talking about the start of the seventh month of the year. So every, you know, sort of three weeks that we get pushed back potentially to, you know, we've been sort of in the process, um, you know, uh, of appropriations for a long time now. So if it gets pushed past that, then now you're suddenly thinking August, mid-August, and now you're in the, the diciest political times that we know. People have been declared nominees for their party in the presidential election, um, and, and you're just not going to get anything done at that point. They'll already have running mates. They'll be campaigning. And, um, you know, that's not a time when people are are prone to agreement. And so at that point, if we don't hit July 1st, which seems very difficult, um, if we get pushed back three weeks, four weeks from that, then it, it almost becomes a when do they get together and start talking about uh, laying in a, a, a safeguard for next year um, and getting us an extension for one more year? Um, and and that's that's the way I see it. I, because I knew I was going to do this interview, I actually called a couple of people just to uh, sort of get my numbers and my timeline right. But I believe that's um, how, how a lot of people see it. Unless something moves fast, um, you know, in the next two weeks uh, and gets on the schedule, uh, things are difficult. And even then, even when you work out and hash out these big negotiations, we've seen um, sort of the effect of the election already. We had this sort of um, immigration um, with foreign assistance funding for Ukraine and Israel all packaged up, you know, Republican uh, senator negotiating the priorities and putting it all together. And it just, it just, it just withered, right? As soon as it sort of the deal got struck, uh, everybody in that, that negotiating process thought they had what they were supposed to go in and get. And um, there's, you know, it's not going to see the Senate floor even, you know, with uh, a largely Senate backed process, just because uh, it was decided that this was not uh, the timing. And so, the farm bill historically has been this sort of let's show people we can get things done. It has the, you know, where you think of low income 
people who you know sort of need boosts to their income for for um for food purchases you know the snap side which sort of covers the urban base it has the rural um investment in, in rural development but but more in farms right and then in the farm value chain if you're supporting prices and farm incomes you're supporting the people who buy and sell from farms out in the rural communities so it used to be this sort of let's get together and show everybody that we can do something um, because we all agree there's some priorities here that are important and we'll make it work and you know that was that was sort of the hope last year is that congress would be like we've had a difficult you know uh start to this new um this new house of representatives we had a republican uh move into the speakership last year and they moved into the leadership and there's some hope that they would say well we want to get one thing done it's the farm bill we want it out of the way for the presidential election year the general election year uh and we'll we'll prioritize it make it move uh and it didn't happen and so if there's not that push to say you know we can all work together and get something done in a non-election year um i don't know where the impetus comes from this year it's um there's certainly been plenty of pressure from farm groups from you know the the groups that work in um hunger and and low income uh support plenty of pressure to get something done and and sort of take this uncertainty off the table about what is going to happen what you know there's this looming threat of these bills expiring and the funding running low um for USDA to to deliver on programs um and it hasn't hasn't generated the kind of response you would hope for something that just has this bipartisan sort of let's get together and do something and show that we can, you know, when there's an obvious sort of um, alignment of interests and it hasn't happened yet. So it, it, the timeline seems um, uh, precarious at the moment. And Roman, I think the final question that's on my mind, and maybe not as much others, but you know, you look at this farm bill, it's going to be the biggest farm bill, arguably cost-wise, we've ever seen at just under one and a half trillion dollars. How do we fund that? I think is the other big question. Um, yeah, the, well, we we fund it um I guess the same way we do everything else, um, hoping that the economy grows faster than spending. Um, that's always the thing, right? We we no longer think of sort of debt or deficit in absolute terms. Um, we think of it relative to the size of the economy. The economy is growing fast. That has two two things working uh, in our favor. If you talk about funding the farm bill, it's um, the faster the economy grows. Um, you know the 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 sort of push to contribute to deficit reduction across the board um, becomes smaller. But more importantly, um, I would expect if we continue to get this economic growth uh, sort of trending up, that by something like May, when we get a new CBO estimates, you'll see um, significant shavings off. And we've already seen it from February CBO numbers. Uh, 1.5 trillion is no longer the cost of the farm bill it's it's about 40 billion 60 billion less than that i think um just because incomes start to go up employment is you know we've had low employment but it's starting to disperse better into places that were hit harder um so yeah I, if you start to talk about where do we go in and find deficit reduction um i, I wish i mean i have my own thoughts but um i I wish there was someone 
out there sort of with that kind of plan, but um, nobody's talking about spending less than the amount that CBO has said they have allocated. So um, yeah, it's, it's the way we do everything, right? We, we, we fund our, our government through, through debt. And um, this one, you know, the one advantage the farm bill has, it's a pretty small ticket item uh, all in all. So when we say 1.5 trillion, that's over 10 years. Um, and, you know, the, the hope is um, that you, you, that the forecast for economic growth over the 10 years that say it'll cost 1.5 trillion um, are a little too pessimistic and that you end up spending, you know, 80% of that. It's happened in the past, but of course we know the other thing, uh, just a couple of things like uh, getting into a trade dispute with China in 2018, uh, followed by COVID caused the last farm bill that was supposed to cost about 800 billion over 10 years, um, ended up, you know, where we are now. I mean, the, the, the change to that was something like 1.25, right? So a big overage. Um, yeah, you know, and, and like anything else, um, you, there is some trade-off. Um, and, you know, one of the things I would say in the ag community that my concern is, um, one of the trade-offs being made is um, other things in favor of the farm bill. Um, so it's it's not so much, you know, uh, if it keeps getting pushed back, uh, there, there are two possibilities. One is people say that the farm bill is working pretty well. They could think the farm bill is working pretty well. So, continue to extend it is not a bad thing just keeping the current legislation and pushing it forward one year now, the alternative is it's not worth our time which at some point could start to say why are we spending so much there let's let's grab some of that money for other priorities uh investment in energy um um you know uh i don't know i've seen some big immigration proposals that uh, and and removal of undocumented persons proposals that would be expensive. And so what you don't want to be is um, small, but then look like a piggy bank for people with other priorities that don't care about agriculture to come and try to, to claw out 50, $100 billion here and there uh, over 10 years to pursue something that doesn't have anything to do with sort of agriculture and food, uh, you know, Absolutely. Well, Roman, we certainly appreciate your insight into the farm bill. Uh, that's unfortunately all the time we have for today, but thanks for joining. All right. Thank you. Again, thanks, Corey, for hanging out with us today on this Friday episode. Maybe we need to have you drop in more often. I don't know. I'm pretty busy. <laughs> Listeners, we know <laughs> you're busy as well, so we're going to cut this short. So enjoy your Friday and we will talk to you again on Monday. We're going to let you go.